Usually the food we tell stories about is the food that links to happy memories, the food that prompts nostalgia, that amazing fried chicken that one night, that barbecue shrimp your mom or dad made that you loved when you were little, and when you taste it, it immediately calls them back up. But not all food stories are so positive. After a few bites, I began to feel guilt. A knot formed in my throat. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories about the changing American South through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today we're doing something a little bit different than we have before. Something we'll do every once in a while. Share some personal stories that circle around food. In cooking, we often talk about balancing tastes, equalizing the sweet, salty, bitter, and sour to have a fuller flavor. But when we speak of food in our emotional lives, we so often stay, I think, in the realm of the sweet, the power of food to satisfy, to bring together, to unite. That's Francis Lamb speaking at the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium at the University of Mississippi a couple months ago. Francis spent some formative time living in Biloxi, Mississippi, and he claims the South, even though he didn't grow up here, as strongly as it claims him. He's also, as it happens, an editor-at-large at Clarkson Potter Publishers and a New York Times Magazine columnist. Francis can pinpoint the moment that his relationship with food shifted beyond the sweet. One day when I was 10 years old, I was in my parents' Chinatown shop reheating some leftovers for lunch. And like my dad and I never really went out by just ourselves, but that day, he wanted to take me to a new place in the neighborhood that he liked. And I totally remember it. I remember the plastic trays, these orange plastic cafeteria trays. And I remember the shiny new steam table. And I remember the pickles that my father couldn't get enough of. And most of all, I remember the look on his face, the sort of smile he had when he saw me just scarfing down these like, thin little pork chops. And so later, for a snack, I'm reheating these leftovers. And this important client comes in this tall, well-dressed Englishman with this fancy briefcase, and he asked for my parents, and then he sniffed around, and then he asked me, what is that god-awful smell? And I looked down at my plate of food, and I said, I, I don't know what that is. And I pretended to be disgusted by it, and I made a show of throwing it out in front of him. This is a story Francis tells over and over again. It seems silly a little bit to get so much mileage out of such a small story, but for me, that small story about half a lunch was really about me learning a lesson in shame. How does food prove a window into uncomfortable truths about ourselves? All of us, for every warm, sweet food story, we probably have a tough one too. One in which the taste left in our mouths wasn't so good. For his presentation at the symposium, Francis reached out to a handful of people and asked them, Tell me about a time when they felt tension in their emotional life of eating. Now, not all of the stories he got are based in the South, but the universality of the experiences shared definitely resonates here. They're stories from people of many backgrounds, ethnically, economically, racially. Stories from people with very different and complicated relationships with their food, by which I mean relationships with their bodies, relationships with their identity, with their privilege, with their culture, with their family, with their past, and with their future at the table. These stories aren't read by their authors. 
They're read by people of other genders and ethnicities, so you can listen with your ears and your mind open. If you want to know more about the authors, head to our website for their photos and their bios. And now, sweet, salty, bitter, sour. The emotional life of eating. Right out of college, I took a job in a small town, population 10,000. It was a stark difference from the south side of Chicago where I grew up, surrounded by 20 aunts, uncles, and cousins within four blocks. You can imagine the culture shock. Everything was quiet. The Walmart, the town bar, and the spaghetti warehouse were the main attractions. My shade of color was available at the paint store, but that's about it. On a rare occasion, I would have a nice treat from a trip home to see my mom. If I was lucky, that treat would be pozole, a spicy soup with hominy and pig's feet in rich broth, an unctuous bowl of satisfaction. It's a staple of celebration in my family's home. It marks the start of the winter season and makes a return on birthdays and first communions. It's a special bond between me and my mom. I'd always ask how it was made and stand by her side while she prepared it. I've learned and forgotten the recipe so many times just to be close to her. You could imagine how it played out when I brought those leftovers back to small town USA. The looks of terror as co-workers saw a pig trotter dripping red silky broth. The questions at first seemed innocent and inquisitive. What is hominy? So it's like corn? But then, why do you guys put chili in everything? Why does it look so weird? And finally, that smells bad. How can you eat that? Suddenly, it didn't sound like an attack on the dish. It felt like an attack on me. You eat differently when people watch you, but more quietly with your face closer to the bowl. More quietly. I never tested the boundaries of lunch there again. I stuck to bologna sandwiches after that. Lou Mayo. My three-year-old daughter's school is very diverse. In her classroom of 18, she is one of four white children. We opt for the school-provided lunch because making a lunch every day doesn't fit our family schedule. It's cost-effective, and most of the children at the school eat school lunch, some of it because it's subsidized based on income. We like the social values of eat what everyone else is eating. Yesterday, she asked me if she could start bringing her lunch from home when I asked why she first said, school lunch is boring. And then she said, because all of the other kids that are the same color as me bring their lunch. Jesse. For our second date, I made the reservation to the culinary magazine where I worked. When we sat down, the maitre d' came over and fussed over me about my latest trip. It's going well, I thought. We'll be treated well tonight. I didn't notice that he barely nodded to my guest. 
When the waiter came to take our order, I chose three of the strangest dishes on the menu, which I knew the chef would appreciate. Excellent order, sir, said the waiter. His response to my guest's plainer request was a toneless thank you. When I looked across the table and saw the look on my date's eyes, I knew the evening was dead. I actually blushed over my foodie pretensions, my concern to claim my place in the restaurant's pecking order rather than to make sure he felt at ease. For our next date, we went to a neighborhood place. I ordered salad and roast chicken. I think that may be why we're still together today. John Willoughby. I was such a picky kid. My diet consisted of McDonald's and grilled cheese and tomato soup. One time, when I was 10 years old, I went to my friend's house, and it ended up being dinner time, so I tried to leave. They insisted that I stay and that I eat. I still remember it exactly. I ate all the potatoes, and I stuffed the green beans and steak in my napkin and put it in my coat pocket. It was time to go home, and my friend's mom is at the door with my coat and the napkin in her hand. She was really in my face. So you didn't like my food, huh? I remember hearing her talk shit about my mother, how she was raising me not to eat anything. Hispanic mothers take this shit seriously. I like to believe my own mom wouldn't have acted that way, but she probably would have. I felt so ashamed. I stayed a picky eater for a long time, but my grandfather, bless his soul, always tried to make me feel comfortable and bought me McDonald's. Stephen Torres. More stories from our emotional life of eating just ahead. But first... Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question... How can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey! Ever consider where your Sunday ham comes from? or your Monday morning bacon? A group of 30 small family farms across North Carolina has formed a natural hog farmers cooperative. My name is Jeremiah Jones. I raise hogs on the ground here in Eastern North Carolina. I raise corn, wheat, and beans to feed my hogs. These farmers care about the welfare of their animals. All around me, we're surrounded by confinement, which is contract farmers. They raise them on concrete and in pens. So we're kind of doing things a whole lot different than the norm around here. We raise ours pasture and deep bedded pens where they're free to roam, no crates, no antibiotics, and no growth hormones. And they enjoy their work. I enjoy the pigs, I enjoy the row crop farming, and I enjoy how they both go together. When you next visit a Whole Foods, look for Natural Hog Farmers Cooperative products. Your purchase and Whole Foods Local Producer Loan Program support family farms. Just as Whole Foods Market supports this podcast. Eat real food at Whole Foods Market. 
And now, back to our stories. My mother grew up in the Indian city of Najpur. Her signature dish is that mixture of basmati rice and meat called biryani. Its saffron scent greets me still when I bring my family home to Kansas, where I was raised. When I got serious about cooking, I followed her as she made biryani with a graph paper notebook and measuring spoons, accounting for spices, noting cooking times. On my first attempt to make my mother's biryani, I cut no corners. I procured meat from a celebrated butcher, spices from the finest purveyor. It was magnificent. Friends concurred. This was biryani which a food truck empire could thrive. I had concocted a biryani that surpassed the one I had grown up eating. But then I began to feel a settling, a deflation. I don't know if it dawned on me immediately, but I realized that in successfully recreating my mother's recipe, I had found a way to replace her, to supplant the way that she greeted, fed, and comforted me. After a few bites, I began to feel guilt, a knot formed in my throat. I don't know if it's because of these conflicted emotions or because, like my mother, I'm prone to improvisation while cooking, but every time since I've tried to recreate this biryani, something has conspired to degrade that final dish. Too much spice, too little meat, mushy rice. Perhaps it's my subconscious way of holding on to my mother, of reflecting on what could be replaced with a few onions and a pinch of saffron. Farouk Ahmed. There wasn't a day in my life that someone didn't ask me, are you going to eat that? Not in a, because I'd like a bite kind of way, but more in a sort of, I cannot believe you are actually going to put that in your mouth, you fat ass, sort of way. I was always overweight kid and into my adulthood. And it was something I heard so often that I basically stopped eating in public. I felt like I was always being watched and commented on. So I'd eat in my room in the dark. In my room, I only had to deal with my own shame about what and how much I was eating. And I was up to 308 pounds by the time I was in my early 20s. One night, my ex-boyfriend and I had made dinner for some friends. I opted out of the entire entree we had made. I just ate the salad. But even when I was eating the salad with ranch dressing, because I was proud because I made the ranch dressing from scratch, and damn it, it was delicious, someone asked me if I was really going to eat such an unhealthy meal. And I couldn't win. Ultimately for me, the mental stress of worrying about what I was putting in my mouth was just as bad as what was actually going in there. I got a gastric bypass when I was 22 on my birthday. C.G. Johnson. Just before I started my graduate program, I spent two days in the archives at the Japanese American National Museum in L.A. to get a head start on my research. So I'm sitting in a research room. I'm feeling pretty special. I get to nerd out, wearing protective gloves so I can look at their documents on Gila River, Arizona. 
This is one of the camps Japanese Americans were forced to live in during World War II, even though not a single one was ever convicted of espionage. All of the Japanese American side of my family was at Gila River. My grandparents were mere teenagers. In the archives, I found a box of yellowing papers. I picked one up, November 27, 1943. Project menu, all kitchens, per 100 people. And it began to list what was served for breakfast, supper, and dinner. Things like pig knuckle and cold boiled spaghetti. Some of the food didn't sound bad, but then I started to understand. This was not our native food. I was holding a document that told me exactly what every single person in my Japanese-American family ate on that day, not by choice, not in celebration, but by force. And the menus continued, day after day, for four years. I had known many stories about the racism my family had to endure, even before the war. My great-grandparents couldn't own the farmland they worked because in California, there was a law specifically banning Asian immigrants from owning land. Asians were not welcomed, not wanted. I knew on December 7, 1941, my 13-year-old grandmother was spit on. I knew my family had just days to leave for the camps. I knew my family was assigned a number. I knew they were kept behind barbed wire. I knew that several uncles died fighting for the United States Army. I knew my family was never the same. I have my own collection of menus. I have a crayon-drawn menu of the first time I cooked dinner for my family. I was nine years old, and I made fried rice, and I must have made a lot because that's the only thing on the menu. But there, in that research room, I was holding a menu that wasn't saved because of pleasure. I had never before considered how the violence of oppression could be manifested in the mundane, in day-to-day -day life. I had never imagined that food might also be part of the instrument of oppression. These menus were unfamiliar, listing foods that looked and tasted nothing like the food at our family meals. They were traces of my family in confinement. I couldn't eat anything for the rest of the day. After the war, my Jichan, my grandpa, worked for years to save enough money to buy a farm. He never left that farm and died in the house in which I now live. Maybe surviving that concentration camp led my Jichan to become a farmer. He was taking back power to cultivate his own place, giving himself a chance to use food to heal. That's the family farm I still work on, and it's something I never want to let go of. But I copied every page I could of those menus, and I keep them so that I cannot forget this dangerous side of food and this legacy of resilience. Nikiko Masamoto. At my parents' house the other day, I found a receipt to Tommy's Burgers. It belonged to my dad. My dad had his first heart attack at 35. He went through triple bypass surgery at 53. He took a dozen pills a day, plus insulin, for high blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes. The date on the receipt meant that in the months before my dad had another heart attack and angioplasty, he had also had a double cheeseburger and fries. Finding that made me sad and angry. My dad loved to eat. He was a great cook. He cooked to show his love and I ate to express mine. He's the reason I became a food writer. But when my dad got sick last year and I moved to be near my parents, I tried to get him to eat healthy. He was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. His body just wouldn't work properly. So we ate the blandest stir-fries, boiled fish, brown rice. On days when the medicine left a sour taste in his mouth, he would eat nothing but a little sticky rice boiled with canned longans. He lost weight. His arms became thin and soft. I lost 15 pounds myself. 
But still, whenever I was going out of the house and I'd ask him if he wanted anything, he'd make the same sad joke. Steak and lobster. My dad died this summer. He was 10 days shy of his 70th birthday. After his funeral, we went to an all-you-can-eat buffet. If I'd known your dad was going to die, I would have taken him here, my mom said. I would have let him eat whatever he wanted to. I wouldn't have. In my dad's sickness, food, which had always been a nurturing lover, had turned into an enemy. I don't regret having urged him to eat healthier in the end. People would sometimes give me a hard time about my giving him a hard time about his diet, and I always felt like saying, you. He's not your dad. Maybe eating healthy bought him an extra month, a month he got to spend getting to know his baby granddaughter. Maybe it bought me an extra month with him. Or maybe I'm a terrible daughter and my restricting his diet accelerated his death. Whatever the case, I don't believe in the magical, soul-healing powers of food anymore. I'm mad about all the packages of ramen he ate late at night when he'd come home from work. I'm angry about the two-for-one Whopper specials that he'd get from Burger King and refrigerate for later. I rage thinking about all those danishes he used to stuff into styrofoam cups and bring home from the hotels he was always working at. I'm upset that he grew up really poor and he couldn't resist access to plentiful, cheap food in the United States. I'm pissed that I didn't push him harder to take care of himself after he had his triple bypass. I wanted him to love life more than he loved food. I don't know if I will come around and find the love in food again. I really don't. Food is not life. Life is life. Food is food. I only need one of them to turn to in the end. Ganda Sutta Barakam. Readers of those stories were Kat Kinsman, Pablo Johnson, Randall Keenan, Glenn Duncan, Helen Rosner, and Pardis Stitt. You can see photos of the authors of the stories on our website, southernfoodways.org. And I'd love it if you'd share your emotional life of eating story with us. You can email us at gravypodcast at southernfoodways.org. You can also find us on Facebook or on Twitter. We're at Potlicker, and I'm at Tina Antolini. Music for this episode was from Michael Hurst, Kai Engel, Computer vs. Banjo, and Tyson Rogers for Diagram Collective. Our theme is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. What's your New Year's resolution? Do you want to get involved with the SFA? On February 25th, the SFA hosts Food Media South over in Birmingham. Our third annual event explores storytelling in the digital age, and we'll ask timely questions about how immigration, ethnicity, and identity all impact food stories. What stories get told, who tells them, We'd love for you to be there and help us figure out the answers. Presenters include Chris Ying, editor-in-chief of the food journal Lucky Peach, and Vaughn Diaz. She's a writer and producer over at StoryCorps. So visit southernfoodways.org for a full schedule of events and a way to purchase tickets. While you're online, take a look at our work and consider becoming a member. Those membership dollars support what we do, including this podcast. I know I've mentioned it before, but will y'all go to iTunes and rate us? Write a review, too, if you got a sec. That means more people will find us when they're looking for new podcasts. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. This is Gravy. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>